Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor or the supreme authority, or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that, you're silent, that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters. Fear God and honor the emperor. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you, Lisa, for reading the passage there from First Peter. My name is Darian. I'm an elder here at the church. And uh, last Sunday, uh, if you were with us, uh, Paul, uh, Kim, has been preaching this summer through uh, Romans 7. And, and, and last week, Paul talked about how, from Romans 7, sin distorts God's good law. Uh, and ultimately, sin deceives the law in us um, to think that we can build our own identity around being a good person. In fact, that's something Paul talked about last time. I can build my identity around being a good person. However, of course, we saw that's just a great way of running away from God, trying to make ourselves good. Uh, Paul's sermon got me thinking this week about our new identity in Christ. Um, and much of Romans is, is focused on how the gospel of Jesus transforms us, makes us new, gives us a new identity. Um, but, but really, this makes me think of 1 Peter, because 1 Peter talks about uh, this in the same way, that there's a new identity that we have in Christ. Uh, but 1 Peter goes on to talk about what it looks like to live that new identity out. Um, and, and that's what I want to think about this morning from First Peter. Not only do we have a new identity, but uh, what does it look like? How practically do we live that new identity out? Um, and as Isaac started the service thinking about Ephesians, that we are created, we are the workmen of Christ, we are his workmanship, we're created for good works, this is exactly the kind of language that Peter uses as well. We have a new identity. We have been made new. And because we have been made new, there is a new way of life. There is uh, a specific kind of way we live out our new identity. So, so today I want to look at first Peter. A little, a little later in the summer, um, I hope you remember something of this morning because I want to come back to first Peter again and keep thinking about how Peter lays out a way that we live out our new identity in very practical ways. So here we're kind of uh, sitting in or jumping into 1 Peter right in the middle or almost in the middle of the letter. We're, we're reading from chapter 2 verses 11 through 17. So help, help, let me help us set up 1 Peter here. Of course, this is Peter, the apostle of Jesus, writing to a group of churches in what we would call now Turkey, uh, in the central north region of what we would now call Turkey. Uh, and the context of the letter up to this point has been new identity. Peter has been describing to his readers their new theological identity. 
if you have your worship bulletin, you might turn back to the prayer of confession because there in the prayer of confession, the language there, all of that is coming from 1 Peter. And all of that is describing our new identity in Christ. Uh, God, our Father, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's given us an unfading inheritance. Also, God's grace is shown to us by redeeming us from an empty way of life that we inherited from our fathers. Again, that's language of 1 Peter. And we've been bought back, we've been redeemed, not by gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We now are to live holy lives, 1 Peter 1.16. And we, like Isaac said earlier, we're like newborn infants desiring the pure spiritual milk that comes from God's word. These are all ways that Peter describes the new theological identity of his readers. And so all the time this morning that we're thinking about how we live out our new identity, I want you to keep in mind that our new identity is given to us. It is God's work in us through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that makes us new. We don't make ourselves new. Keep that in mind, because none of this works without God's first work in us, his redeeming work in us. But here in 1 Peter, after talking about our new theological identity, he focuses the second half of the letter, right where we're going to start reading, on what it looks like uh, to live out this new identity. And what I want you to see is that Peter uh, focuses more than just on what our new identity in Christ looks like internally, like do I pray more, do I believe a certain set of things, those things are important, but we're going to find out very quickly that Peter focuses on tangible ways we live in a, in, a, in a new way. Our new identity is shown by what we do, not just privately in our spiritual lives, but how we conduct ourselves in public, in front of a watching world. Uh, so new identity in Christ is a very public thing, and it's for the purpose of witness, communicating a new reality has come about. Not just for me, I have a new identity, but a new reality has come about. The Son of God has been risen from the dead, and that has changed everything. So living out our new identity is external, it's public, and it's for the purpose of witness. Okay, so this morning, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12 first. And in these two verses, uh, this is like the transition in the whole letter. So Peter has been talking about new identity, our new theological identity in Christ, Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 are the transition, and then the rest of the letter he's unpacking or saying more and more about what it practically and tangibly looks like for us to live that new identity out in the world. And in verses 11 and 12 are my first two points of the sermon. So first, in verse 11, we're going to look at how new identity in Christ reorients our notion of home where we belong. I'll say more about that in just a minute. Second then, in verse 12, we're going to look at how new identity in Christ sets us on a mission, uh, gives us new marching orders. And those marching orders are uh, mission into the world, evangelism and communicating to the world around us this new reality. So those, those are the, the first two points in what I want to talk about today. This is verses 11 and 12. And in those two first points, 
are basically the context, the overarching or the large context in which we live out our new identity in Christ. Now, what comes next, the third point, because you can't have a sermon without three points, so here's the third point. Uh, What comes next in 1 Peter is actually a list, and it's a long list of very practical ways we live out this new identity. And today, we're only going to look at the first example of that longer list. Um, Later in the summer, I'll come back to chapter 2 of 1 Peter and continue down that list, but we're only going to look at the first example in that list, uh, and that's the third point of the sermon today, and, and that point is, is that living out our new identity in Christ in verses 13 through 17 of First Peter chapter 2 is to live in submission to the government. Whoa, how does that work? Um, so hold on, we'll get to that, but that's the first way Peter describes how we live out our new identity. It's in submission. Not very popular to talk about submission. Uh, But first of all, I want to look at verses 11 and 12 and kind of set the context for uh, how we live out our new identity, this new reality that God has made true of us through Christ. So first of all, look at verse 11. First, the first point here, and it should be up on the uh, slide. New identity in Christ reorients our notion of home. Verse 11 again says this, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is what Peter calls his audience. Did you, can you tell what he calls his audience? He calls them, well, they're, they're not very encouraging things. He calls them strangers and exiles. Um, this is not in the bulletin, but if you have your Bible and look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, this is very similar to language Peter uses there at the very beginning of the letter. In chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says, to those chosen living as exiles, and then he lists the area, areas where they're living as exiles. The ESV, another translation of the New Testament, reads, uh, to those who are elect exiles, elect exiles. That's a really strange way to try to talk about the audience, elect exiles. The first thing I want you to see is that this language comes from the Old Testament, both the word elect and the word exile. Both of those terms are coming from the Old Testament, the story of Israel. First of all, of course, uh, Israel is, in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is God's chosen people called to a holy way of life, part of God's covenant, and set apart from the other nations. Israel was chosen by God not because Israel was big, mighty, strong, wise, successful. No, God chose Israel because he loved them, because he saw them as his people and brought them close through covenant. So Israel... Uh, was God's elect people. And now Peter is telling his Christian audience, you too are chosen, elect. God has sought you out, rescued you. But at the same time, the other term also describes Israel in the Old Testament, that is exile. At the same time, throughout the Old Testament, the story tells us of how God's chosen people rebelled against his good covenant plans again and again. And because of Israel's rebellion, because of ignoring or being inattentive to God's covenant, Israel was exiled or sent out of their land. 
into Egypt or into Babylon. These moments of exile were moments of of, of punishment for Israel. And now Peter is using these two terms to talk about his audience, elect exile. Elect exile. Do you know what an oxymoron is? You know, jumbo shrimp, like what on earth is that? Or deafening silence. Um, I was going to say something about Charger fans, like successful Charger fans, but I didn't, I, did, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't want to say that, but now I said it, and I'm a Chiefs fan, and anyway. An oxymoron, right? Two things that don't go together. Pretty ugly is another one. That, this just makes sense. Elect exile is kind of like an oxymoron. How can you be both elect, chosen, delighted in, loved, near, belong, but at the same time, be in exile, don't belong. You see, even in these little phrases, Peter is already helping his audience understand what their identity is and the implications of that identity. Peter, is, and, then he, and then he adds, not just elect, exile, but he also then in verse 11 adds the word stranger, elect, exile, and stranger. And that word stranger translated really is like, uh, resident alien. That's probably the best way to translate that Greek term, is a resident alien. Someone who's living in a culture and society in a country where they actually don't belong. They don't have a passport there. They're temporary. Or their standing is um, somehow fragile. The point that Peter is making here by using this language to describe his audience is to say that there are repercussions for following Jesus. Um, our new identity is secure in Christ, but it, but it means that we actually uh, now change how we view the world around us. In fact, Peter is saying, because you are elect, now you are exiles. Because God has chosen you and drawn you into this new reality of a new identity, it's going to change the way you relate to the world around you. It's like you once belonged here, but you don't any longer. Is that clear? I want, I want to explore that in three brief ways, just as we're thinking about this first point. Um, I want to think about identity, affinity, and a sense of location. I want to think about these three things, and all of this is a way of exploring what, is, what does it mean that we're strangers and exiles now. So first, following Jesus changes how we think about our identity, about who I am. Whereas... Once, let me just take myself as an example, whereas once I thought of myself as an insider, um, as part of the gang, uh, someone who belongs, because of Christ, I am now actually a, an outsider, a stranger. Let me, let me keep thinking about this. Um, because when, when we think about our identity, often we think, you know, think about our culture. We think of things like... Um, uh, what do I do? What is my job? So at a dinner party, the first thing someone asks you is, oh yeah, who you are? Who are you? And well, what do you do? Um, so this is part of our identity. Um, part of my identity too, again, think of our culture, my gender, uh, whether I'm male, male or female. That's, again, that's, a, that's an issue that our culture is navigating. How does gender affect uh, our identity? Or, you know, my ethnicity. Um, it's hard for me to hide the fact that I am white and male and, and the Kansas City Chiefs thing gives you a little hint. I'm Midwestern, even though I've lived in California for a while. These are elements of how I understand my identity. And they're important. They don't go away after I become a Christian. So they're still meaningful. 
However, I think what I want to say here is that my identity fundamentally is not now determined by the color of my skin or the gender that I have or my job, but my fundamental identity now is in Christ. God has done something in Christ such that my, my, my deepest sense of who I am is now rearranged. And I want you to think of like a card deck, reshuffling. All the cards are important. All those pieces of who I am are important. But because I am now in Christ, I reshuffle the deck. And the card that floats to the top is the card called in Christ. I am now a new creature. I think of myself in a new way because of my identity in Christ. So, so that, that, that's part of what Peter is talking about here, a sense of uh, my, my own identity and how our, the, 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 excuse me, the deck of our identity is reshuffled such that my being in Christ is now at the top of the deck, though everything else is still important. It, but it finds its relationship to that one prime reality that I'm now in Christ. Um, how about affinity? Second, uh, following Jesus changes my feeling of affinity, or what I mean by this uh, is it changes who and what I love. Who and what I love. That is, uh, people love, uh, uh, people who I love, and things that I prefer, or things that I love, are now radically reoriented by following Jesus. Whereas it was easy for me to love thoughtful, college-educated professionals, basically people like me, it was easy to do that, uh, because they're like me and they agree with me, those are easy people for me to love. Uh, now that I'm in Christ, actually I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, whoever my neighbor might be. So who I love is now being reoriented by, by my identity in Christ, my new identity. Um, so anyone near me uh, who has a need, that's my neighbor, and that's the one I love. How about what I love? So new identity in Christ also changes what I love. In fact, look back at verse 11, if you can see it in your bulletin. Verse 11 at the end says, so dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Here, Peter is saying, look, at one time in your life, you loved things that you thought would comfort you, things that you thought would fill you and make you happy. There's a way of following after your desires like that. Um, that becomes very empty. And Peter is saying, um, your new identity in Christ not only changes who you love, but it changes what you love. No longer are your desires uh, just trained upon the things that bring you pleasure. What you love is going to change. Now, I was going to say something about football and motorcycles here. I love both of those things. Love them. What does that mean? You know, can I still love the Chiefs and be a Christian? Well, you know, a Chargers fan might be worried about that. Um, but we have some help here in Christian history. Um, Augustine. Uh, so, in fact, if you take your bulletin and turn to the uh, very front of the bulletin, there's some reflection quotations, and one of them comes from the City of God. Augustine, in his famous book, The City of God, distinguishes, and it's a very big book, but through the book, he's distinguishing between two cities, the city of God and the, and the earthly city, or the city of man. And very much like us before Christ and after Christ, uh, here, Augustine is distinguishing between two cities and he's using the distinguishing tool of what you love. 
What you love is what distinguishes whether you are part of God's city, the city of God, or the city, uh, the earthly city. And here the quotation says this at the beginning of the, uh, the worship folder. Augustine says, we see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt for self. So Augustine is saying, here's how you distinguish between the city of God and the city of man, the earthly city, is what you love. Augustine gives this really interesting illustration of being in a theater. Uh, we could imagine, you know, a football stadium, uh, a SoFi stadium or something, uh, where you're cheering for the Chiefs, not for the Chargers. Uh, and, and, and you have this great mass of people, and, and they're all watching the same spectacle. How do you determine who are citizens of heaven and who are citizens of the earth? Because they're all mixed together. And Augustine says this, when the audience views acts of brutality, acts of power, acts of subjugation, acts of sexual indiscretion, a certain part of the audience cheers. They stomp their feet. They stand, stand tall and, and worship. They love what they've just seen. But at, but at other moments in the performance, Love, self-sacrificial love, goodness, righteousness, kindness is played out in front of the audience and a different group of people in the audience stand and cheer. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Augustine is saying you can tell who is a part of the city of God or the city of earth by what they love, what they delight in, what they find beautiful, what they find compelling. Peter here is talking about how our identity in Christ not only changes, um, uh, uh, not only changes uh, the way we think about our identity, uh, but it also changes what we love. It, it changes our affinity. It, it changes both who we love um, and what we love. Uh, finally, uh, the third thing I wanted to say here is location. Following Jesus changes our sense of location, where I belong. To continue this illustration from Augustine's City of God, um, in Christ, I am no longer a, city, uh, a citizen of the earthly city. Oh, I live here, but I don't belong here. I'm not defined by the logic or the values of this earthly city any longer. In fact, my status at a, as a citizen of the kingdom of God means that, I, or the city of God, means that I am now a stranger. I'm a resident alien. Where I once was right at home, I'm, I'm no longer at home. Former friends no longer understand what I'm doing. Places, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking of that old sitcom, Cheers. Do you remember that? 1980s, right? It's about a bar in Boston. I mean, how did you get a sitcom out of that? But, but the, the song at the very beginning of the sitcom is, you want to go where everybody knows your name. You want a place where you belong. And we used to sing that song about the world for ourselves. I used to be known here. This used to be my home. But my new identity in Christ has complicated that. It's actually no longer a place where I, where I belong. Uh, but, this, but this dislocation, or perhaps better, relocation, is not for the purpose of hating the world. Nor is it for the purpose of separating from the world. And here's where I'm going to offend some people. It's also not so that we put a bumper sticker on our 
car, not of this world. Have you seen that bumper sticker, by the way? If you have one, it's, it's okay. However, when I first moved to Southern California, I started seeing this bumper sticker, and first I didn't know what it meant, and I know the Bible, right? And then, and then I thought, oh, oh, I see. Yeah, they're saying I'm not of this world. But I, I, worry, about, I worry about that idea because our new identity that complicates our relationship with the world around us isn't so that we hate the world, isn't so that we separate from the world. In fact, this moves into the second point. It, it moves into verse 12. Um, our new identity, our... Um, uh, reoriented home, as it were, our exile status, does not mean that we give up on the world. In fact, we have a mission to the world. Because of our citizenship in the city of God, this does not mean that Christians should abandon the world around us. Note what Peter says in verse 12. Let me read it for us again. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That is, for Peter, among those who do not believe. Peter is expecting Christians to live around people who aren't following Christ. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, those who don't, do not believe, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Notice that Peter expects the, the church, Christians, to live in the world. And, and not only to live in the world, but to live conspicuously. What would it look like for Christians to live a conspicuous life? Not obnoxious, but conspicuous. Um, I think maybe uh, just all kinds of applications are flowing into my head at this moment. So here at church, we follow a liturgy that can be really strange for the world, right? So it's Christian, or somebody who's not a Christian, never come. If that's you today, we're so glad that you're in our you know, meeting this morning, we want people uh, who are thinking about Jesus, exploring what it means to be a Christian, to come and to feel comfortable here. And as we follow the liturgy, which is something strange, we're trying to explain it as we go through. Why do we do a call for worship? What, in a moment, what are we doing when we, we do Lord's Supper? We want to live conspicuously, but intelligibly. We want people to see and understand what is this new life that we're living Peter calls Christians to live conspicuously before a watching, unbelieving world. Why? For the purpose of witness, so that they might see. They might see good lives, good lives lived out in the midst of non-believing, uh, a non-believing world. I'm going to say a little more about that in, in just a minute. Um, but I want to dwell just briefly on this point in verse 12, that such witness, living conspicuous lives of goodness, is costly. Look at what verse 12 says. It says, uh, when they slander you. I really wish that said, if they slander you, but that's not what the text says. It says, when they slander you. So notice Peter is expecting that when you live your new identity in Christ out in front of a watching world, you're going to experience pushback and resistance and maybe even outright persecution. When they slander you as evildoers. Um, notice something else there. When they slander you as evildoers. As a, as, as a Christian living out your new identity, Peter is saying you need to live good lives. You, uh, you need to do good works. Remember what Isaac was saying about, about the memory verse, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Peter is actually saying, guys, when you live your life out in front of a watching world, 
You live your new identity in Christ out in front of a watching world and you're doing good. You're doing the right thing. You are going to be misunderstood. And being misunderstood by the world, you're going to be resisted. And I think the encouraging, well, this is not so encouraging, but the the pep talk that I would give us is when that happens, endure, keep going. Don't have the expectation that the world is going to applaud your life in Christ. Don't have the expectation that you're going to be understood. In fact, expect to be misunderstood. Expect to do right and suffer for it. That's actually the example that we have in Christ. We'll look at that later uh, in the summer. But Peter is saying, when you live a conspicuous life of goodness in front of others who are watching, you will probably be slandered for it. And when you are slandered for it, uh, Peter is basically saying, keep going so that they will observe your good works, so that they will see it. Peter here is expecting that as you live your life out in front of a watching world and you receive flack or resistance, the way you respond to that, uh, people are watching. Uh, and while they watch, the, the hope is, is that they will begin to see this witness or they will receive this witness. Uh, this is what Christ and new life in Christ is all about. So here is the context, those first two verses, 11 and 12. This is the context for living out new identity in Christ, a new sense of home, a recalibration of our notion of identity and what we love, Um, and also uh, that we are to live conspicuously in front of a watching world. We're not to hide or to separate, but live in front of others, and that might be a hostile situation. So all of that is the context For now, how Peter shifts into a list of very practical ways of thinking about how we live our new identity in Christ out. And we're going to look now at verses uh, 13 through 17 uh, and how Peter now talks about, um, well, he gives gives a a list uh, and um, this is a household list. It's a list where he's like uh, addressing different people in a household and this first group of people that Peter is addressing is the whole household. This applies to everyone. Look at verse 13. He says this, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Do you see that phrase again? Doing good. Verse 16, submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, and honor the emperor. Here, uh, Peter is arguing that we live our new identity in Christ out in front of a watching world first by submission. This is not a a, a Christian strategy of going and dominating the world and getting our way and making other people bow to our, you know, agenda. Are you following me? That's kind of one way of engaging the world. No, Peter is saying the way that we do this is through submission. First, submission to government. Uh, Submission to those who are in authority, 
uh, over us. Peter here argues that we should submit ourselves to every human authority, whether an emperor or to governors. And, and this is challenging. Okay, this might be challenging for us today, but I want you to put yourselves in Peter's shoes. Peter is writing at a time when the Roman Empire is the largest, um, strongest you know, entity on the planet. And the current emperor, when Peter is writing, is probably Nero, someone who famously, when he was accused of having started a fire in Rome that actually burned down most of the city, he accused Christians as being the instigators of the fire, which sparked a large persecution of Christians. So much so that at one of Nero's dinner parties, he actually strung Christians up on poles, doused them in oil, and lit them on fire uh, as torches for his dinner party. And that's gruesome, but it's, but it's the context in which Peter is writing, and Peter nonetheless is saying, here is how we live out our new identity in Christ by submission and even submission to the Roman emperor. Now, I want to be very careful to say what Peter is not saying. Peter is not saying that you must be loyal to Nero. Peter is not saying that you must be loyal to the President of the United States. It's not loyalty that's on uh, uh, offer here or uh, that's being demanded here. Instead, it's submission. Uh, uh, loyalty to governing powers uh, or the particular person at the moment who is wielding power of the state, um, that, that, it's not loyalty. Uh, and, and I might say it's more a submission to the office instead of a submission to the person. Uh, that Peter is, is getting at here. Uh, not only is loyalty not a part of the submission, uh, notice what else Peter says. Peter clarifies that this uh, participation in politics, this submission to governors, is because of the Lord, verse 13. It's because of the Lord that you're doing this. And you are to submit to government as free people not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. That's verse 16. Notice this well. Christian submission to government is not coerced. The government cannot demand it. You are free. You are free in Christ. Christian submission to government cannot be extracted. Rather, Christians willingly submit. Why? Because that's what the Lord has led us to do. And our submission to the government isn't so that we can get our man in office. Now I'm really stepping on toes, right? Our submission to government isn't so that we can change America and, and make it what we want it to be. Peter, at least, is saying the reason for that submission is mission. It's to put on display what new identity in Christ looks like. We're not striving for an earthly kingdom. We're striving for the kingdom of heaven to come about on earth as it already is in heaven. Lastly, Peter says that we submit as free people, as God's slaves. Now again, talk about another oxymoron. Are we free or are we slaves? Um, we need the Old Testament story to help us understand this. Think about the Old Testament. Think about Israel. Remember Israel in Egyptian captivity? So Israel, because of famine, had to leave their promised land where they were provided for. They went into Egypt where eventually they were enslaved. And at the beginning of Exodus, we hear the, the, all the male children uh, of the Israelites were being thrown into the Nile. They were being persecuted and enslaved. 
God's people are not where God wants them, and they are not under God's rule. They're enslaved. And, and God, through Moses, brings about this great act of liberation, this great act of release, of redemption, where Israel, Israel is brought out of captivity. They're freed from their slavery, right? A moment of celebration. We're free again. Ah, but if you keep reading the story, where does Israel immediately go? after being released from captivity and bondage to Egypt, they go straight to a mountain called Sinai. And there, they bind themselves to God in covenant. They become the slaves of God. And this quintessential story of the Old Testament tells us what it really means to be free. To be free is to not be my own. To be free is not to throw off the laws and regulations and be autonomous, be apart from the law. No, real freedom is to be bound to God. Real freedom is to be a slave to God because that's where we find our greatest freedom, our greatest sense of our createdness is to be enslaved to God. And Peter is saying, this, this, is, this is how you submit. Um, it's not an issue of loyalty. Uh, you submit uh, because the Lord has called you to submit, not because you're coerced to submit, not because... Uh, uh, you, uh, your, your submission is extracted from you. Uh, and also you submit as, as free people, as slaves to God. And notice very last little characteristic of how we submit. Look at verse 17. Peter says, honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. That's a really important last thing for Peter to tell us because um, whereas we honor and give honor to those who are due honor, we reserve fear for God alone. In other words, there's like a greater fear that we give God. There is a loyalty that we give God, but there is an honor that we can give to other people. And, and I think Peter is trying to help us see that anytime you are living out your new identity in Christ in the public sphere, and part of that means submission to government, is you always know your greatest loyalty that trumps any other loyalty, trumps any other connection you might make. Uh, so here, we might ask some questions. You know, uh, though we are now citizens of heaven and we live in the earthly city, uh, how, how, do we, how do we live out our, our lives around people who have strikingly different values and strikingly different agendas? Um, uh, Peter doesn't say to separate and, and, and uh, live in a monastery or to separate from the world around us. Instead, he's very interested in, in us living out our identity in this world and in the sphere of politics. Now, that doesn't mean all of us have to go into, you know, please let us not all become politicians. That would not be helpful. Um, but, it, but it means that we have to think about how we engage, how we engage the public world, and how do we engage as Christians with a new identity. So he, here's a conclusion. We've talked through these three points, and later in the summer we'll talk about more ways in which Peter unpacks how we live out our new identity. But I want to uh, finish by, by reflecting on this specific application of how we think about Christians in, engaging in politics. Um, the, I think there are three common Christian approaches to politics, and I'm getting this from a, a book called To Save the World by 
James Davidson Hunter. Now, James Davidson Hunter, he's visited Biola before where I teach. He is a sociologist at the University of Virginia. He's a, a deeply Christian man. In fact, I think he dedicates the book to Tim Keller. Uh, James Davidson Hunter argues against these three common approaches to politics. Let me go through them just briefly. First, the Christian right. The Christian right, Hunter says, is a posture of take back America from the liberal agenda. This is usually motivated by fear of losing American values. However, this approach is most concerned with either keeping the status quo or with getting back to an idealized time in American history, a time which may never have actually existed. Here, we could bow to the idol of America as savior, or democracy as savior, or a certain kind of cultural you know, conservatism as savior. Hunter calls this, James Davidson Hunter calls this, the defense against approach. This is the defense against approach in Christian engagement with politics. Second, the Christian left. Uh, this is a posture of resisting power and oppression for the sake of defending the rights of those who are not in power. However, this approach often is so concerned to revolutionize culture or politics that little concern is given to what is right, to what is ethical. Here we could bow to the idol of relevance. In fact, Hunter calls this the relevance to approach to politics. Uh, third, uh, there's an approach that he calls the neo-anabaptist approach. The neo-anabaptist approach. This is a posture of disengaging with politics altogether. This approach concludes that when Christians become involved in politics, they necessarily compromise and distort the gospel. Therefore, the church is at its best when it prophetically speaks to culture and politics, but not being a part of culture and politics. So it's speaking from the outside. This, I think, uh, raises the danger of self-righteousness. Here we could bow to the idol of self-righteousness. Why? Because if the church is not a part of culture, uh, and the church thinks it's better than the culture, then there's this idea of self-righteousness, this idea that we're better than uh, and can look down on culture. Hunter calls this the purity from approach. But James Davidson Hunter argues uh, for an alternative paradigm, something that he calls, and he didn't coin this phrase, but he calls it faithful presence within. Faithful presence within, which he contends is a better view than all three because it gets beyond the desire to reclaim or take over or change the world, that's the Christian right or left, or it gets over the idea of forming our identity in opposition to the world, that's the neo-Baptist, neo-Anabaptist view. Faithful presence within, says Hunter, is a kind of engagement with culture and politics that is shaped by Christ's ministry and Christian identity. Christians are exiles, and their task is to be faithfully present to each other and to the world, especially to those outside the church. Christians are to pursue others, identify with others, and labor toward the fulfillment of others in sacrificial love. Faithful presence. Uh, let me read a larger section uh, from Hunter's book, and he gives a very interesting illustration 
of voting. So hang on with me here. I thought this was a very practical illustration of, uh, of engagement with politics and the issue of voting, whether or not we vote. Hunter says this, a final irony has to do with the idea of political responsibility. Christians are urged to vote and become involved in politics as an expression of their civic duty and public responsibility. This is a credible argument and a good advice up to a point. Yet in our day, given the size of the state and the expectation that people place on the state to solve so many problems, politics can also be a way of saying, in effect, that the problems should be solved by others besides myself and by institutions other than the church. It is, after all, much easier to vote for a politician who champions child welfare than to adopt a baby born in poverty. It's easier to vote for a referendum that would expand healthcare benefits for seniors than to care for an elderly and infirmed person. Easier to rally for racial harmony than to get to know someone of a different race than yours. True responsibility invariably costs. Political participation then, Hunter concludes, political participation then can oftentimes and does amount to avoiding responsibility. In fact, what he's saying there is that if we're only thinking about voting, and that's the only way we engage politics as Christian, that might be a way of avoiding the responsibility of being faithfully present. That's challenging. I find myself very convicted by that. I think this actually captures what Peter is calling us to do. This is how we live out our new identity in the public sphere. Faithful presence. Christ himself was faithfully present. Christ himself became incarnate, walked among us, lived his life in a conspicuous way, died and rose again. I think faithful presence, living out the gospel in both good words, evangelism, and good deeds, love to our neighbor. This is how the world has changed. This, I think, is how Peter is calling us to live out our new identity in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, as we reflect on your words that we hear here in 1 Peter, Lord, help us um, as, as we're confronted by the reality that you, Lord, have worked in and for us in Christ. You have given us a new identity. Um, Lord, we rejoice in that. But we pray, Lord, today as we've been reflecting, help us to think about what this means, how this changes the way we live in the world. Um, Lord, even practically how we think about government, how we think about our um, participation in government, help us here, Lord. I pray that um, everything that I have said that has been unhelpful, that that would be forgotten. I pray, Lord, that your words that we have reflected on from 1 Peter, that they would stand strong in our minds, that they would convict us, draw us to um, living, a, a way of living faithfully, but Lord, of course, always in your power and in your presence. Lord, challenge us. Help us to live out our new identity in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.